So our Bible reading, as I've already mentioned, is, is Psalm 19. Um, I do have a bookmark for Psalm 19, and we'll just read it together. Um, so it is a song of, of worship as a response to defeating enemies, if I remember correctly. Um, and we'll just read it together. So Psalm 19, for the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. It's uh, really good to see you here this morning. I just want to add my welcome to Williams. Thank you, William, for leading us uh, in the service. And you're really welcome here, whether you're watching from home or you're here with us in the building. Uh, it's wonderful to, to see you here. Uh, as we continue to begin the, the start of this new year in 2023, we thought it would be helpful to just take a few weeks out to consider uh, this little mini-series is titled Songs for the Journey. And what we're going to be doing is looking at, at a psalm over the course of three weeks. So today, the psalm is Psalm 19. And uh, in the Old Testament, the, the psalms are often called the hymn book of the people of Israel, but there are hymn book as well. And so we are going to be looking at this song and thinking through how does this song help us uh, to, uh, to become more like Jesus, to go on in our journey of discipleship. And so we're, uh, if you do have a Bible open or a digital version, please do keep your finger in Psalm 19 uh, this morning. But before we look at that uh, this morning, let me pray for us uh, and then we'll open up God's word together. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning with heavy hearts as we remember uh, the grief and the sorrow in the Richmond family this morning. Father, we think of Linda in particular this morning and Cheryl uh, and Claire and Esther and the wider family. Father, we do just pray, please, would you minister to them? Would you help them uh, in their sorrow? 
as they remember their beloved father and husband, Bill. Father, we thank you so much for him, for the many years of his life and the, the experiences that we shared with him, uh, for the man that you made him to be. And we thank you that he is with you now, seeing you face to face. But Father, we do just pray, please would you uh, comfort those uh, of his loved ones who are here uh, today or at home. Father, would you please show them your mercy and your kindness. Would you be their pillar of strength and their rock and their redeemer? Father, we are also reminded this week, as William has said, that we, we mourn with those who mourn, but we rejoice with those who rejoice. So, Father, we do just pray for little Lily Gamble, and we thank you for the gift of life. And we do pray for Peter and Taylor as they welcome this child into their home. Uh, Lord, that you would build her up in strength and in health, but also, Lord, in her faith in the days and weeks and years to come. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a film that I remember watching when I was growing up called Contact. You might have seen it. It's based on the, the book, the novel, by the astronomer Carl Sagan. Uh, and it follows a character called Dr. Ellie Arroway. She's an American scientist who is working in this space observatory and working on this program that is especially dedicated to finding, is there intelligent life out there in space? working on this program looking for extraterrestrial life. And so she spends her days and nights looking up into the sky and wondering, are we the only people here or is there someone else? And one day she discovers this radio signal that's being transmitted from deep in outer space. And it's a message from an alien civilization 26 light years away. And she begins to decode this message along with her team, it turns out that it's this alien civilization trying to make contact. And so if you've seen the film, if you remember the film coming out at the time, there were movie posters all around uh, the world and cinemas around the world with, with this strap line, a message from deep space, who will be the first to go? And so the big idea at the heart of the film is this, there is somebody out there and they want to make contact with us. Well, for many of us today, there's a question that's asked not just in science fiction, but for all of us actually as human beings. That question, is there life out there? Or are we the only people in this universe, the only intelligent life? Can I believe that it's not just me, not just us in this universe, but even is there a God out there who wants to speak to us? And if there is a God, what is he like? Can I know him? Now, many people will say today that if there is a God who exists, that he is silent, that he has not spoken to us, he's hidden himself from us. Or other people might say, well, if God exists, he, surely he can show himself to me, maybe by performing a miracle, giving me real tangible evidence that he exists. Maybe that's a question that you have asked yourself, maybe at home if you're watching. Does God really exist? I just don't believe there's enough evidence for him. But actually, it's not just a question for skeptics of Christianity. It's also a question that even for those of us who here today would call ourselves followers of, uh, of God, we sometimes ask ourselves, don't we? Especially if we go through times of suffering, when the doubts can creep in, and we ask ourselves that question, God, I might know that you exist, but I can't hear you in my life. I can't see you in my life right now because of the trouble that I'm going through. Many of us will have experienced those kinds of questions. Where is God's? Is he hidden? Well, what this passage in Psalm 19 tells us here this morning is this, that God has really revealed himself to us 
We just need to look up. He reveals himself to us in two key ways. First, through his works, and then through his words. First, his works. Verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So this revelation is, David says, without words. As David gazed up into the sky, he couldn't help but notice that there was a sermon being preached. It wasn't a sermon with words or with sounds, but nonetheless it was a visual sermon. He says in verse 1 that this sermon tells us this message is this, the glory of God. That is what the sun is saying to us day by day. That is what the stars are proclaiming to us when we look up into the night sky. Now today, if you go into an art gallery and you see lots of beautiful paintings and sculptures that are there, I'm, I'm sure you'll appreciate some of them as being particularly beautiful and impressive. And that then raises the question, Immediately, doesn't it? Who has made this? This sculpture that I see or this painting I see hasn't just popped out of nowhere, but there's somebody who's taken the time and the effort to craft this sculpture out of stone or paint this picture. And in the same way, what David is saying is, look, there is this beautiful creation that we can see all around us. The skies are declaring God's glory and their glorious design tells us about a glorious designer. God is glorious in his power, in his magnitude, the fact that he has created this universe out of nothing, and yet scientists will tell us that there are trillions of stars in the universe, a number that is just too massive for us to even begin to comprehend. Not only in the size and the scale of God is he glorious, but also he's glorious in his creativity and his artistry. Just think the last time uh, that you appreciated a beautiful sunset or saw a shooting star. And you see that God isn't just big. He's not just huge and infinitely powerful, although he is. But he also has the creativity of a master artist. And what's more, it actually all works together so well. The makeup of our universe, the way it is composed and designed, points towards a creator God. And that is because as many scientists who have taken the time to study the universe will tell us is that the world seems to be finely tuned for life. This is sometimes called the finely, fine-tuning argument or the design argument. That the universe has been designed within such a small uh, level of precision to such great detail that if any of the constants that govern our universe, like the force of gravity, for example, if any one of those were to be changed even by the tiniest fraction, then life could not exist. One uh, physicist, a man by the name of Paul Davies, he once said this, there is powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. And so when we look out at the night sky, as David did, we observe a universe that could not have arrived here by accident. The chances of that happening are just way, way too small. So the fact that the skies, the universe have been designed points us towards this wonderful, awesome creator God. 
and this revelation is constant and universal. Creation speaks in verse two, day by day and night by night. Every single morning when we get up out of bed and draw open the curtains and look up at the sky, we are seeing God's grandeur every day. Every night as we go to sleep just before we go to bed, we look at the night sky and we can see God's amazing grandeur every single night. It's constant. And this creation speaks to all people throughout the world. Look again at verse four. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And this is the thing actually that made the God of the Bible utterly unique in the ancient world. Most, if not all, other faiths and religions in David's day would tie their God to a particular feature of creation. So some religions would worship the God of the sun or the the moon God or the God of the sea, picking out a very powerful aspect of nature, but it was only one part of God's creation. For example, the ancient Egyptians worshipped the sun god, Ra. But what David is doing is he is putting the sun in its proper place, isn't he? That's why I think he spent so much time in verses 4 to 6 speaking about the sun. It's a case study, if you like, about the fact that God is not subject to the sun. He's not just one God among many. No, he is the awesome creator God. He stands above and outside his creation. The sun and the moon and the stars, they are all his servants. They are the ones who are preaching this message that there is a a much greater creator God who exists outside of it all. The sun is not God's, but it points towards God's. Verse 6 says this, there is nothing, there's no one that is hidden from the sun's heat. And in the same way, this same God is God overall. He's, He's universal. He's not just the God of the Egyptians or the God of the Israelites. He is the God of everyone. Just as the sun, whether you are in Doha or Dublin, Beijing or Belfast, doesn't matter. You will see the same sun. The rays of the sun will affect everyone. You might feel the heat in different ways to different degrees, but you will see the sun in the same way. And that means that all of us are without excuse when it comes to the knowledge of God. And that's why Paul can say this in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. You see, we can claim, can't we, in our own lives to say, I I can't see God speaking right now into my particular set of circumstances. But we cannot look up at the heavens and say there is no God. Paul says, when you look around at the universe, when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, clearly you see evidence of God's creation, of his awesome power and his creativity. We are without excuse. But this general revelation of creation only takes us so far, doesn't it? It can tell us about the power, the majesty, even the creativity of God. But it can't tell us everything about God. Second, what we need to hear is his word. The iconic artist 
uh, Vincent van Gogh. He died in 1890, but a couple of years, uh, sorry, a couple of decades after his death, his letters were discovered and many of them were published for the very first time. Most of them written to his brother Theo, who he had a very close relationship with. And in those letters, you gain a much, much greater insight into the kind of man that Vincent van Gogh was. You get an insight into what he thought about life, about faith and the meaning of life, about art, both his own artwork, but also art in general. You get an insight into his love and relationships. You get an insight even into his painful struggle with mental illness. Because in these letters, Van Gogh takes the time to put into words what he was really feeling and thinking. And as you read these letters, you get an insight, a greater insight actually that even the best art critic could give you just by looking at his art. And so it is with God. God's artwork, his creation is infinitely more glorious, infinitely more creative and spectacular even than Van Gogh's. And yet, if that is all that we had to tell us about who God is, it would still leave us with lots of questions, wouldn't it? Questions like, who am I? Where am I going? What is the purpose of my life, the purpose of this universe? And what is God really like? If you were to go today outside after the service and look up at the sky and shout all of those questions into the clouds, you wouldn't get an answer back, would you? No, of course not. What we need is God himself to reveal his nature to us, his heart, his mind to us, to reveal to us his plans and his purposes. And thankfully, that is exactly what he does by giving us his word. And so David changes the focus here in verse seven, and he tells us uh, about God's word, both what it is and what it does. So you'll see, if you look at verses seven down to the end, you'll see these series of couplets each of them telling us what God's word is and what it does. So for example, the law of the Lord is perfect. And then something that it does, it refreshes the soul. And each of these uh, words that are used to describe God's word, you'll see, you'll see them there, uh, law, statutes, precepts, commands, decrees. Really, they are all referring to the same thing. For David, the word of the Lord was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But for you and me today, if you're a Christian here this morning, we're, we're living 2,000 years after Jesus died and rose again, and we have the benefit of having all 66 books of the Bible, all of God's special revelation. So actually, we're in an even better position than David was. But that is what he's referring to. It is God's word, the Bible. And so we're going to look at uh, now what is, according to David, what God's word is, and then what it does. First, what God's word is. And in this section, he describes God's word as perfect. Perfect in verse seven, meaning it is without any flaws. It's without any holes or gaps. Trustworthy, also verse seven. Unlike so many of our words that we speak day by day, our words are often unreliable, aren't they? Whether it's because we intentionally deceive other people or we just simply make mistakes or we're ignorant, we don't know all the facts. No, God's word is utterly trustworthy. He can always be counted upon. And then again, a similar idea in verse nine, it is firm or secure. And what all of this means, the, the perfection, the completeness of God's word, what it means is that God's word is unchangeable and it's reliable. 
It is not like the news cycle where a story will come out about somebody and it is maybe hot off the press and irrelevant today, but by tomorrow it is old and stale and maybe irrelevant. Or a news story in which you get one version of events, but then you read another newspaper with a different ideological slant and you get a totally different view of events. No, God's word is unchanging. God's word is perfect. And so that means that we can stake our very lives on it. Not only is it perfect, but it is pure, meaning it is morally pure. It is without evil. And that can be seen in which, uh, the ways in which David describes God's word. In verse 8, it is right. It is radiant. In verse 9, it is pure. And so to sum all of that up, it is the very definition and reflection of goodness. It reflects God's character. In fact, we only know of God's character because he chooses to reveal it to us through his word. If we were to look up at the skies, whether during the daytime or the nighttime, we would never know that God is actually a good, loving, holy God. And yet when we open up his word, we see God giving us his law, gives it to Moses. We see God's love for sinners and yet his punishment for sin. And we see, just to take one example, the, the greatest ethical teaching ever given by the Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. We see God's goodness, don't we? As William was saying earlier on, a person's heart reveals their true character. Their words reveal their character. Whether they are kind or caring or harsh and cruel, all of that you'll be able to pick up if you pay close attention to somebody's words. And so it is with God. As we open up scripture, we can see what he is like. That's what God's word is, but what then does God's word do? What does it do for us, according to David? Look again at verse seven. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Now the NIV translates this as refreshing the soul, but actually a better, a more literal translation would be converting the soul, reviving the soul. It's not just that our souls are in need of a little bit of light refreshment, a bit of R&R. No, the Bible says our souls need radical conversion, salvation. Our souls need to be converted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That is why the first thing that this word does for us is it brings salvation. Now, there's quite a, a popular view of the Bible that it's a kind of Aesop's fables for Christians. You might remember reading Aesop's fables as a, as a child, stories like the, ter, uh, the hare and the tortoise or the goose that lay the golden egg. They're really good stories, but they've absolutely no basis in reality, do they? They're myths. The Bible's very, very different. It is not just a, a disconnected collection of made-up fables or stories, but it is one true story, all of which is pointing and climaxing in Jesus Christ. Every part of the Bible, every event, every character is all leading up to Jesus himself. And so we could describe the plot line of the Bible very briefly as follows, that God made it, God made the universe, we broke it, Jesus fixes it, and Jesus restores it. God made the universe. At the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, this all-powerful creator brings about this world. And not only that, but brings us, our first human parents, Adam and Eve, into a perfect relationship with him. 
reflecting his goodness and his love and his mercy. But then second, we broke it. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about how humanity rebelled against God, wanting to become gods themselves, kings themselves over their own lives, thinking they knew better. And so they bring sin and death and destruction into the world. But then thirdly, Jesus fixes it. Jesus comes into the world. John chapter 1 verse 29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus, by dying in our place on the cross for our sins, takes on himself the penalty that we deserved. And making right this world, making right our relationship with God once again. So we are invited into God's family, the church. And then finally, Jesus will return. Jesus will restore the world and make everything new, make everything right. We see that, for example, in Revelation 22 and verse 12. This is the big, big story of the Bible. The plot line of salvation history, it's about the promise of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, and the return of Jesus. So everything else in the Bible, every other character, they're really just supporting actors in this great drama in which Jesus is the star. That is why the writer of the Hebrews is able to say these words at the beginning of his letter. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God, isn't he? And so the question for you and for me this morning Firstly, primarily is this, have you trusted in this Jesus? Is he your savior? Because without that, there's no point reading the Bible. There's no point trying to learn from it if we don't trust the God at the center of it. That is the first thing about how our souls in verse seven can be converted or restored to God. Then also the Bible brings wisdom. Verse seven, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And verse 8, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. That great and well-known philosopher, Oprah Winfrey, uh, once said, she once said these words, follow your instincts. That's where true wisdom manifests itself. Is that true? Is that where wisdom really comes from? Well, I can say here this, this morning, hand on heart, I certainly hope it doesn't come from within. I certainly hope it doesn't come from me to decide what is the best way to live my life. How can I live a life that is good and that is right and that is pleasing to God? No, it certainly doesn't come from within me. And the Bible, as we've seen, is not just a, a textbook of moral instruction, a random collection of wise sayings. That's not what the Bible is. And yet, when we trust in Christ as our Savior, the Bible does bring light, as David says, to the eyes. It does bring wisdom. It does enlighten us. It has all kinds of things to say about every topic we can imagine, whether it's how to handle our finances, how to become generous people, good stewards of what God has given to us, whether it's how to be wise in our relationships, how to handle that difficult relationship with a colleague or, or our boss in work, how to be good parents, all of those things we find vital instruction in the Bible, but perhaps the greatest source of wisdom in God's word, is it just tells us who we really are. It shines a light, as David says, into the dark corners of our hearts and shows up 
what we're really like. The idea here is similar uh, to the psalmist who says this in, in Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And conversely, if we don't listen to God's words, we are like those foolish people stumbling around in the darkness. Like somebody who gets up in the middle of the night and doesn't switch on a light and expects to be able to, to find their way through the house. They're in great danger of falling down, aren't they? In great danger of injuring themselves. Because without God's word, we are blind to our true nature. Without God's word, we will all do what is right in our own eyes. We see that actually in society all around us, don't we? People who don't have any sense of who God is and following just their own hearts. Whatever seems right to me, that's what I'm going to do today. Without God's word, we will have a puffed up view of ourselves and we'll be utterly foolish. And then thirdly, it brings joy and delight. Verse eight says this, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. And in verse 10, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Now, I don't know about you here this morning. Maybe honey is not to your taste Maybe it's not something that you actually like. But remember back in David's day that he didn't have chocolate cake. He didn't have a salted caramel ice cream. So whatever it is that you find most delicious, just for a moment, substitute that thing in your mind for what this is, uh, what David's saying here. He's saying that's what God's word is like. It is sweeter than the sweetest thing imaginable. It is more precious than the most valuable commodity And God's word is precious and sweet because God himself, his presence is precious. In the end, it doesn't just uh, bring us wisdom, although it does. God's word isn't just true, although it is, but it brings us joy. It brings delights. A.W. Tozer summed it up well when he said this. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an, uh, an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. So there is a sweetness on offer in God's words, but we have to taste and see that it is good for ourselves, don't we? I've got some honey here this morning. This is the honey that I put on my uh, porridge in the morning, most mornings. And I could tell you quite a a few things about this honey, couldn't I, just by observing it. I could tell you that this honey is golden, a lovely golden color. I could tell you that this honey is a liquid because of the way it sloshes around in the bottle. It's not a gas or a solid. I could even tell you that this honey, it says, it's made naturally from flower nectar collected by honeybees. I can tell you the source of this honey. I can even, because of the manufacturer, I can tell you how many calories are in this honey. I can tell you all of information about it, but it's not until I actually open it and taste it for myself that I'm really benefiting from it, that I'm being nourished by it, that I'm experiencing that it is sweet, that it is good for me. And David says in the same way that God's word is sweet like honey. We have to taste it for ourselves, don't we? That's why we encourage uh, at Strand Time, we encourage all of us who are followers of Jesus to get into God's word, to experience it for yourself. Take up 
a regular pattern of reading the Bible, if you haven't already, and just soak yourself in it. Do it as an individual. Do it in small groups, maybe with a friend or two. Do it in a life group. But taste and see that the Lord is good for yourself, that his word is sweet because his presence is precious. Well, how then do we respond? If God has revealed himself to us through his works and through his words, how does David respond? Verse 12, he says this, speaking of God's words, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And so when faced with the reality of who God is, that he's revealed himself through his creation and through the Bible, what David then does is interesting, isn't it? Because he looks at himself and he immediately realizes that he does not measure up to God. God, you are holy, you're awesome, you're powerful, you're majestic, and I am not. And I think all of us have had that sense, haven't we? When we have gazed up into the night sky on a clear evening, and we see the, at times, tens of thousands of stars that are visible to the human eye, we get a sense of our minuteness. We get a sense of just how small we are in comparison to the majesty of God. And also when we open up God's words, we read about how loving he is, how holy he is, how awesome and good he is, and then we think about ourselves that we are not loving and good. And so what David discovers, what he responds with, is a sense of his own sin. He says, Lord, forgive my hidden faults, even those things that I'm not aware of, that I say and I do and I think that falls short of God's law. And we can say the same thing, and in a moment's time, we will have the opportunity to confess to God those ways in which we've fallen short of him. What are David's parting words? Well, he says this in verse 14, and we've heard them already in our Bible verse. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So God reveals himself to, you, to us, but there is a response then for us to make. We respond to God's astounding revelation through words of gratitude. Because in the end, the skies are not just a phenomenon that we observe through an astronomer's telescope. No, they are works of beauty to be appreciated, done by the finest artist in the universe, our Heavenly Father. The theologian uh, Jonathan Edwards once said this. He said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. And so we can respond today through the words of our lips and through the meditations of our hearts to say, God, you are beautiful. God, you are glorious. God, you are worthy of all of my praise and to rejoice in him for all that he's done for us. In a moment's time, we're going to do that as we come to the Lord's Supper. But before we do that, let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your astounding revelation to us, that you have given us a glimpse of who you are through your creation, by looking up at the night sky, by seeing the, the sun in the daytime. Father, we are just overawed when we consider the beauty of your creation, the magnitude of it, the glory of it. And it leads us to conclude that with this glorious design, there must have been a glorious designer.
Father, we thank you for that evidence of your existence. And we thank you, Lord, though, even more that you aren't just the creator of the universe, but you are the faithful covenant gods, that you're the one who loves us, tiny and insignificant though we are. As William said earlier this morning, Lord, we are not insignificant to you. We know, Lord, that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. So, Father, we thank you that your words are true, that they're reliable, that they bring us salvation and wisdom and joy. Help us today, Lord, and this week to worship you, to respond to you, to rejoice in you and in your words for all that you've done for us. Amen.